0: Hello everyone and welcome to the SHE Research Podcast. I'm your host Kate McKay and today I'm joined by Suzanne Plater. Hi Suzanne. Hi Kate. How are you doing? Really good, thank you. Good, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Suzanne's here today to talk about her paper called Hitting the White Ceiling Structural Racism and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander University Graduates. And this paper was co-authored with Julie Mooney Summers, Lindsay Barclay, and John Bolton, um, all at the University of Sydney. And this paper is um, reports the findings of a larger study that's called the Big Slap: Mature-aged Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander University Graduates and the Myth of Meritocracy. Sounds really fascinating. Really excited to have you here to talk to us, Suzanne. So, um, what's the elevator pitch? What's the summary? of this paper that you and your co-authors have produced?
1: Well, I'm not very good at elevator pitches. (laughs) I'm too verbose for that and I just need to correct one thing. It's Mm. Leslie Barkley. Oh, thank you. That's all right. Um, So this paper is part of a, a larger study, as you said, that explored what having a university education means to mature age Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander University graduates primarily from remote and very remote communities, but also from regional and urban areas. And the two main findings of which this paper presents one are related and yet they're antithetical in that the finding that's explicated in this paper is about the presence and effect of structural racism in the graduates' workplaces and communities. And the other finding is how the graduates constructed and employed their transformative potential um, that came about as part of a university education. Now, they're related because the more the graduates um, exercised their transformative potential, in other words, asserted their authority in the workplace as graduates and as Aboriginal and Torres people, the bigger the slap they received. And, um, that slap is related to structural racism. Mm-hmm. So that's the elevator pitch, if mm-hmm. that works.
0: Yeah, that does. That's great. So what were you? What motivated you to undertake the study that led to the paper, the findings in the paper?
1: So I used to teach mature age Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander University students, mm-hmm. and... Um, from my experience, just anecdotally, I had seen them um, leave university completely different to the way they came in. Mm. Much more um, knowledgeable and skilled, et cetera, but also more politically astute and active. And I was under the impression that they were able to go back to their workplaces and put all of that to really good use. Mm-hmm. So I thought I need to find out for sure if that's happening or not, because I was only guessing. And I hadn't really heard anything to the contrary. So when I started doing um, a literature review, I found there was hardly anything about mature age Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander University graduates. What there was was um dismissive, defeatist. Mm. Basically, they weren't worth investing in because they were too old, it was too late. Um, they weren't worth much to society in terms of economic productivity. This was linked to national um, life expectancy data, which basically said that they're gonna die young. Mm. So invest in young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander university um, school leaders, as far as university goes. So that was basically the message in the literature. And I thought, well, that doesn't match what I know. So uh, now I need to go and find out what having a university education means to these graduates in the context of that as well. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what sort of set me down that path. And I was still thinking that I would find, you know, you're not meant to go in with assumptions, especially when you're doing a grand theory study, Mm -hmm. but I did. And I was still assuming that I would find stories of, um, you know, Confidence and pride and achievement and aspiration and change, etc. And I did find all those things, of course, but um, I couldn't separate them from the other finding, which this paper is about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that so was what motivated me.
0: Yeah, and so I wanted to ask you about that because the um, there are multiple really interesting findings in this paper, but the title of the paper is the white ceiling and that seems like the real major um finding but i wanted to ask you um what you what you think are the main points of interest and um what you really want people to take
1: away from after reading this paper paper. yeah okay so the main points of interest a the graduates conceptualize success very differently Mm -hmm. and this Definitely appeared to produce attention in their workplaces. So for the graduates, it wasn't that economic success wasn't important. Um, it's just the whole concept of economy was different. Mm-hmm. So for the graduates, success, economic success was measured by their capacity to allocate the products of a university education, such as knowledge and skills, other attributes, material, objects, etc., to their kin. And this was a reciprocal process. So um, it wasn't one-way giving, um, it was reciprocity and it elevated the graduate status in their families and communities. So it was really important to them that they could allocate the goods of a university education in that way. This appeared to put them in conflict with their workplaces. The workplaces didn't want the graduates to behave in this non-conformist way. The workplaces were controlled by white cultural norms and practices. They had their KPIs to meet. Um, there were plenty of people in positions of power that didn't want to see that diminished in any way. There was all kinds of things going on. And because I haven't explored the perspectives of white people in these workplaces, I can't really tell you what those things were. But from the graduate's perspective, it was all about Racism. It was all about seeing them as less capable, less worthy, non conformist, and, um, and the whole idea of, of uh, them asserting their cultural capital in the workplace was just a no go. Mm. It was sort of like the white way or the highway.
0: Mm.
1: And what happened uh, as a result was every time the graduates did try to assert themselves in the workplace assert their authority, their capital, their priorities, um, they would experience a backlash. And it came in different ways, but mostly very subtle, not subtle to the graduates. I believe they could see it coming from a mile off. Mm -hmm. But from an outsider looking in, it may appear subtle. So they were quite often sidelined at work. They weren't invited to meetings. They were demoted. They weren't able to apply for positions that other people magically could apply for, mm-hmm. people who were more conformist to the workplace cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Um, often a white person would be parachuted into a role that was meant to be an identified position, something for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person to fill, but apparently they didn't have the capabilities to do so. Mm-hmm. So the graduates called it sneaky racism or tricky white fellow business. Mm-hmm. Um, the sociological data labels it racism without races um, and various other um, titles and labels um, and definitions, but it all comes down to the same thing in the end for the graduates. They couldn't progress the way they thought they would be able to Mm -hmm. once they had a university education. Mm -hmm. So they were very disappointed, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. There were expressions of hopelessness and despair and, and sorrow um, and anger that, mm-hmm. that came out of the interviews for the way they were treated and are still being treated because I still speak to them all the time mm-hmm. as I'm finishing off the PhD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so did I cover what you asked? Yeah, you did, yeah. Well, that's great. <laughs> I, t- I did tell you I would rattle on a bit. <laughs> oh,
0: I think it's very interesting. One of the findings that... Um, really struck me in your paper was the way that um, Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would be appointed into a role um, to meet the diversity requirements. So they were the black face at the table, but they weren't actually wanted, to, wanted there for their views. So they didn't get to actually perform to the role and, they, yes. and when they could. They could perform to the role, they could provide valuable ideas and insights and feedback but uh, it was just a box ticking exercise, which um, would be incredibly frustrating. And, but I found it really interesting. There were some interesting uh, thoughts about um, the complicated economics as well of funding things and not wanting people to do too well. Mm. That I found really fascinating. So what's the next new research, Suzanne?
1: Um, Okay, so well, I mean, I'm, I'm pulling this all together now into a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I'll do more publications. But as far as the next step goes, um, there's a lot going on at the moment about structural racism or systemic racism in Australia, which is great. It's mm-hmm. Suddenly it's almost like you know the can of worms has been opened and there is no closing it. Mm-hmm. There's been some great work done. By different scholars like Debbie uh, Bagali, who's just written a book called "Unmasking the Racial Contract,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is about exactly about this what I'm writing about in a specific environment—that's the Australian public service. Uh, Suzanne Ingram, who's a Wiradjuri scholar, is doing some work around box tickers, which mm-hmm. you mentioned before, mm-hmm. a whole box ticking exercise to meet the KPIs without actually achieving very much at all. Um, so I think I. Obviously, I think my research is going to add to the voices that are already, you know, out there or emerging Mm -hmm. to make it impossible for thinking people, (laughs) caring people, Mm -hmm. to ignore the presence of structural racism in Australia. And I'm trying to link that back to, and it's not hard, um, the denialism of the colonial project in Australia, Mm -hmm. going right back Mm -hmm. to 1788 and coming forward from there, there's still very active um, denialism of our history Mm -hmm. and the legacy that has created for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also the way it protects white innocence Mm -hmm. and power and privilege, Mm -hmm. which is the main game for structural racism. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll be I'll be chasing that down as well at the same time as other people are doing so. So this will add to that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Just a just a tiny project of dismantling the system of structural racism.
1: (laughs) Yes, but you know, there's been progress. So I don't feel disheartened.
0: Yes, I agree. I say that in jest, but I really do mean it. And we can do it. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Suzanne. It was really great.
1: It was a pleasure, Kate. Thanks for making it easy. Oh, no problem.
0: I will link your paper and this episode's show notes for anyone who's interested in reading more about uh, The White Ceiling. Um, And for anyone who's interested, you can catch the rest of our She Research podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, and wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.